Season 2 is well underway and will consist of 25 episodes. I've got all but 7 of those booked already with some incredible artists that we'll walk a little bit of a little bit of road with like we're going to do with our special guest today. Most musical podcasts usually focus on one style and, and I respect that and I support that, but I have such a wide range of musical tastes that I have guests on who make the music that I love from across the spectrum. In fact, my only rule for the type of artist that I have on as guests is that they make music that I love. That's it. It's really that simple. And I have to say that uh, you are all in for a real treat today. My guest is Ron Hicklin. You may not know his name, but if I were a betting man, I would bet money on the fact that you've heard him sing many, many times. Ron doesn't do many interviews, so this is a, a real special opportunity that we have All songs and clips used in this episode are used by permission or under fair use for educational and commentary purposes. So how can I be sure that you've heard Ron sing? Well, Ron and his vocal group, the Ron Hicklin Singers, sang on over 100 number one hits of some of the most iconic songs and albums ever made. Thousands of songs, hundreds and hundreds of TV and movie soundtracks. And he has sung with artists like The Letterman, Monkees, Neil Diamond, the Ray Conniff Singers, Ringo Starr. Cher, Johnny Cash, Donovan, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Carpenters, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, and many, many more. Ron and his group also sang on many TV theme songs that I grew up with, like Batman. And Laverne and Shirley. Days. These days are Flipper, Love American Style, which I couldn't watch as a kid. And also commercials like the McDonald's, You Deserve a Break Today. And Kawasaki, Let the Good Times Roll. You've also heard Ron and his group singing on such iconic film scores as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Hunt for Red October, Dances with Wolves, Apollo 13, Glory, Hook, Out of Africa, and so, so many more. We could spend all day going through Ron's uh, impressive resume, but I'd like to get our conversation started. So Ron, it is a real pleasure to have you on Journey to the Stage today. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Brian. Well, and I owe a debt of love and gratitude to our mutual friend, Sally Stevens, for connecting us. And her memoir is coming out October 25th called, uh, I I sang that. So I encourage everybody to get a copy of that. Yeah. So Ron, you and your wife are in Hawaii. Are are you enjoying retirement? Uh, Well, very much. I retired kind of the hard way, but I went from uh, uh, 40 years of being in the top male singer in my profession to... uh, a point where actually Sally and I were working together on uh, Snow Falling on Cedars. And at the end of that session, I lost my voice. 
and that oh, was boy. the end of my career. Uh, it wasn't nodes or anything that uh, that was typical of a vocal problem, but for 40 years, I'd averaged about 18 hours a day in front of a mic, so my voice was in incredible shape. And then suddenly I couldn't move my vocal cords without coughing. And so that was just it. It was over. And I, th I thank God for a wonderful career because it was a one of a kind and unique. But I've been retired since 61 and I'm 85 now. So <laughs> it, it, I've enjoyed a long retirement and a lot of good golf. So there you go. Well, that sounds like fun. And I'm sure... Your lovely Trudy is just loving having you around. So I'm sure you guys are just enjoying yourselves. I'd like to take a step back a little bit. Sure. And kind of start at the beginning. When was it that you noticed that you had a song in you that, that you wanted to sing? Well, I'll make this very brief, but I grew up singing from the time I... It was during the Second World War, and uh, I was sitting in a swing singing things like Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition or White Cliffs of Dover or My Buddy, those songs of the Second World War. And I was sitting there to, as a small child just swinging and, and singing to myself. I did take piano lessons and was quite accomplished uh, for my age, but I quit by the time I was in the sixth grade. When I was 11 years old, I formed a quartet. Uh, we called ourselves the Smooth Shavers because we were singing a barbershop quartet, uh, a barbershop nice. material. And by the time I was a freshman in high school, my voice had changed from top tenor to where I was the lead tenor. So I was the soloist and everything else in the group. And we entered a talent contest on KING TV in Seattle and won. And so for two years, we had an hour show on King TV in Seattle, my sophomore and junior year of high school. And then the other guys all graduated. So that was the end of that. And then I put the quartet back together again at the University of Washington, where I was uh, studying pre-med. I was the uh, uh, song chairman, and we won Songfest, and uh, Capitol Records ended up signing us, and I decided to make that a, a career and move to Hollywood and uh, start a career with Capitol Records. That's incredible. Now, you grew up in an age that had some of the greatest voices I've ever heard. Who were some of those, some of those crooners, some of those vocalists that you heard in really what I call the golden age? Who were some of those that kind of captured your ear? You know, for for quite a while, when I first did my first motion picture, which was uh, uh, actually it was the Music Man, and I was si singing with seventy of the greatest voices that the Hollywood ever had, and. Wow. It was amazing that I was sitting there and I could he hear, not knowing anybody, I could hear around me voices that I could identify just by the sound of their voice, who they were. Uh, you know, the Thurl Ravenscrofts and the Bill Lees and people yeah. like this that preceded me in the business. First of all, I was amazed at all of that. But secondly, I decided that that was the career I wanted rather than standing in front of people singing the same song over and over. So I loved working the studios 
And uh, that became my career because I didn't have to leave town or anything. So the thrill on the answer to your question, the thrill was walking in and recording with Frankie Lane, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, uh, Sinatra, Margaret Whiting, my gosh, you know, people of, of another era, uh, Andy Williams, Johnny Mathis, all the way through to Elton John and, and Streisand and people like this that I recorded with. And there were so many stories coming out of those sessions and such. Uh, and basically, somebody that lived in the apartment right overhead that was signed with Capital for seven years with the way we were was Glenn Campbell and his career started there. So we, we all end up together doing shindig twice a week on national TV. And my group was backing uh, everybody that came on the show and then doing our own act on the show. And this went on for a couple of years until I had my first number one record uh, that, that I sang on that I actually go sang with. Well, that's incredible. So I watched you recount the story of you in, in uh, an early group. You were practicing, you were with Capitol, and you heard somebody banging on the your ceiling, which was their floor. Tell that story, because I think it's a pretty fascinating one. We could hear the sound up, up above, you know, of, of kind of stomping or different sounds like this. And we were down there practicing, uh, rehearsing for our first album with Capitol. And... Uh, as we were going through our material, we would kind of sit there and try to take a broom and hit the ceiling or something to let them know that, that you know, it's noisy up there. And then suddenly there's a knock at the door and, uh -oh. <laughs> and we somebody had come down and we opened the door and this guy standing there and he said, you know, I, I heard you guys singing. Do you mind if I come in and, and listen and, and hang out? And we said, Okay, but try not to make any noise, you know. And it turned out to be Glenn. <laughs> yeah. It was Glenn Campbell. And the, wow. the the weird thing is that's where our relationship started. We were really good friends. And later, the Basin Night Quartet and I and Glenn and Jerry Fuller, who wrote, uh, Jerry wrote Traveling Man. And the four of us were the wow. background group for Rick Nelson doing his stuff. So... Uh, not oh, only does, was Glenn a uh, picking in the studios as part of the uh, the studio group, which was basically known as the Wrecking Crew, and so Glenn was picking there, but he did some backgrounds and stuff with me vocally. So our careers intertwined that way, and then we did Shindig together and all that stuff. So there, it was all these people starting together, including uh, you know when I. And right at the beginning, I met Leon Russell, who had come to town. Oh my! Uh, who had come to town actually with uh, David Gates, and the two of them kind of split because Leon was kind of a street guy, you know, like a Baptist piano player, and, and mm -hmm. you know, just just from the street, just from Seoul. And David was a school musician, and I worked for both of them, doing vocals for both of them, and David later. Uh, formed bread and, and became the soloist within bread and writer for all that right. stuff. So that was, it was a mass of talent all working together and starting the business together.
And I, I think Leon went on to, uh, he did all right for himself, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's really funny. I think back on the days that he had me singing for him on on sessions that he was orchestrating, and then later hearing him sing his own leads and stuff on his stuff. So that was great. Yeah. And yeah. people like Larry Nechtel that were in his group, they were also you know, part of the wrecking crew and part of all of the sessions that we did uh, in in Shindig and stuff. Right, and of course, uh, Leon was one of the few guys up on the roof when when the Beatles played up on the on Apple Studio roof. So yeah, Leon and I were very close. I mean, we would go all night, even playing ping pong against each other. It, <laughs> it was it was quite a time. But Leon changed a little bit. He took about a year off where I think he got mixed up with LSD or something. And he took about mm -hmm. a year off and he said to me, he said, Ron, if you would try this, you would, you would see everything for the way it was. You would see people for the way they are. And I said, Leon, let me live this through you. <laughs> because <laughs> you first, yeah, I enjoyed right. my life and my career and I didn't want to mess with any of that stuff. So I said, no, no, that's fine. <laughs> my first number one record uh, was uh, Leon was the arranger and Snuff Garrett was the producer. And mm -hmm. I'll try to make this a short story, but I was home still struggling with a wife and two kids and and the phone rang, and it was uh, it was Snuff and Lee, Snuff Garrett and Leon, and they said, "Can you come down to the studio? We're trying to record this kid, and we're having a little problem." And I said, "Well, I'll be right there." So I drove into Hollywood, and I walked into Western Studio Three, and Bones Howe was mixing, and uh, who did the Mamas and Papas and all that? Oh so, yeah, legendary. Yeah, and Leon and snuff those three were in the booth and they were trying to record this kid and i walked in they said listen to this and see what you can do to to improve upon this and i said mm -hmm. well i listened to this song and i said well let me put a harmony part on in the bridge and that might give mm -hmm. it a lift and i did and they said yeah that's great and then bones said why don't you have ron sing with him and I said, you mean sing lead with him? And he, they said, yeah, it'll round out the sound a little bit. So okay, we, yeah. we sang together. And it, it was Gary Lewis, and, the, and oh, but it turned out to be Gary Lewis and the Playboys. And so anyway, we did this thing, and it was a, a song called This Diamond Ring. This Diamond Ring doesn't shine for me anymore. And this Diamond Ring... And this, oh, my goodness. Yeah, This Diamond Ring... <laughs> came out and it was number one and it kicked out that whole career and i had no idea who this kid was and then suddenly in the mail i got a check for 25 dollars, and i looked at it and it was note thanks for what you've done for my son i said i would have taken that 25 dollar check and had it framed and put it up for for my first number one record except i needed the money so badly <laughs> I cash a check. And then after that, we did Count Me In. We did basically She Just My Style. And, and I brought Al Caps in, who was the bass in my quartet. And Al wrote that with uh, with Leon and stuff and said the bass part. And I did like 10 right in a row that were top 10 hits there.
that really kicked off a lot of my career because people were saying, who's who's singing that? And the word (laughs) got out in the industry that I was ghost singing stuff. And and so I started getting hired. Uh, I started getting hired to do backgrounds, but the the thing is if they wanted me they ended up actually putting me in charge and having having me hire all the other voices so that kicked off my wow. career not yeah. only of singing on everything but uh, of putting the groups together and so it was an interesting evolution of my career because it went from you know my first hit into to recording with everybody that was out there and putting the groups together for whatever. And I hesitate to take a left turn, but at the same time, the connection with Liberty and and that introduced me to Ross Bagdasarian who created the Chipmunks. And so I I did the, the voices for the Chipmunks for 40 years. Now, so when you say you did the voices for the Chipmunks, are you talking about for the theme song? Or are you talking about for the actual voices of the characters? I'm talking about all the singing. Wow. Ross Magnusarian, who created the Chipmunks, was David Seville. That was his surname. Right, right. And uh, he created the Chipmunks, and he became the voiceover uh, voice, you know, where all the speaking parts were Ross. And then uh, we did the singing. So, you know, wow. Alvin, Theodore, and Simon, we, that was us. Right. So, and I, I heard somebody else talk about those sessions. This was years ago. So maybe it was an interview you did in the past. But I, I remember this person saying that when they recorded those, there could be no vibrato. Because as they sped those tracks up, any vibrato would just be so amplified and be so wavy that it wouldn't sound right is is, does that sound about right yeah it probably was either something that i was quoted on or stan maybe stan farber was but i was there for 40 years doing that uh in charge some of the other voices we changed or or whatever we were trying to do but i was getting to get the group together and we did it and it was probably one of the hardest things uh, for instance, when we did the Chipmunks sing the Beatles songbook. If the Beatles had a four-bar phrase, the way it was done is if you recorded the band at 60 IPS, and then you, you slowed it down to 30 IPS to play it back to us, which is which means everything is half as fast coming through your earphones. And it's just kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. You know, that's what you hear there instead of the normal speed of things. So we would be singing to that. So if a four-bar phrase at speed was reduced down to where we had to do a four-bar phrase at half speed. It was like an eight-bar phrase where we would have to hold without breathing and stuff like this for eight bars. You had put an edge on your voice that kept straight tone. Otherwise, if the vibrato would make it go like that, you know. Right. Uh, You'd have to, it was almost an angry situation where you had to just dig in and, 
and extend everything and do go slow motion through the words like help me you know that kind of thing and you get all the way through that then they raise the the thing back to the normal speed and we're our voices shot up an octave and and the, the band was normal so where i'm going with that one thing was uh when that came out chipmunks sing the beatles songbook the chipmunks the album itself won the best engineered album <laughs> and if you listen to it 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 breaks me up because on one channel you've got the band on the other channel you've got the three of us singing that is not necessarily Academy Award-winning engineering, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's got you got <laughs> band on one channel on, on stereo and the voices on the other, and all the work was done really by by us. Uh, but it, it, when you put it together, the the phenomena re, uh, got the uh, the Neris Award, the best engineered album. <laughs> for Dave Hassinger and it was just kind of funny because I thought oh that's a, such a hard trip and we actually did some of that stuff when the Watts riots were coming down and there were there were people out in Hollywood on top of the Knickerbocker Hotel with rifles and stuff like that shooting at people and I remember recording with Ross who was an ex-Marine when we walked out of RCA studios, we were going along the, just sneaking along the wall to go to our cars. And here we were doing kids things like the chipmunk. And Ross had mm-hmm. a 38 in a shoulder holster. Because oh, <laughs> he, he was a tough guy. And we just said, okay, let's, this is one for the books. We're in here doing the chipmunks and we're having to uh, sneak out under gunfire to get to our cars. So. That was funny. How truly iconic. I mean, because obviously the chipmunks were, they were a singing group. That must have kept you very busy. How? Not really, because those were were sessions. Every session we did, that's the reason I love the studios. Instead of doing the same song over and over or anything else, I would go in and I would do the most sessions I ever did in one day were seven. (laughs) <laughs> seven different recording sessions and what we do is walk in i'd have everybody hired uh walk in at a specific time sight read everything in sight and then leave i'd fill out contracts as fast as i could run to the next thing run to the next thing and when i would get home my kids say what did you do today daddy and i said you know i can't remember <laughs> i can't remember the songs <laughs> and then when later when it would come out and you had a number one record or something you'd realize oh yeah that's what we did we never even had a chance to hear it now there's an end to a lot of those stories you know what happened to this or what happened to that but anyway from there when the beatles were so hot and america's answer was to put together a group in the studios by the producers which ended up being the monkeys to try to do an american version and they couldn't record them so 
after about 11 shows with nothing recorded, they they uh, hired me to come in with with because uh, Snuff actually was uh, producing at that time. He hired me and a couple of the other members of my quartet to come in. And we did the first three shows in 20 minutes, locally. Wow. And then they decided, no, this is starting to sound like Gary Lewis and the Playboys. So they they actually let Snuff go and decided to keep me to work with uh, the vocal stuff. And from that point on, it was David and Mickey singing different you know, step out to do leads, and then I did the other stuff. So that kicked off that whole phrase with the uh, the monkeys, uh, where we did all of that. It, the word got out that there was a ringer singing in there. So after a couple of years, the, the other guys, uh, Peter and, and Mike, decided we, it wasn't fair to the fans. They needed to do it themselves. And the show went off the air. Uh, a year later, they contacted me and said, would I come back in and, and record with them? And so I came in and I did a duet with uh, with David, which was Valerie, and that went to number one. And that, Beautiful. And that was kind of the end of that. After that, Boyce and Hart, who had been producing and writing for the Monkees, kind of teamed up with uh, David and Mickey, and uh, they had me come in and work with them, too. So they went on the road and tried to do that. But that led to um, to another studio group uh, that was put together to, to do a television show. And that turned out to be the Partridge family. Yeah, and your involvement with them was really, really unique. And I, I learned about this as I was talking with Sally Stevens. What was your involvement with the Partridge family? Because I think that's... That's pretty fascinating. Well, because of my experience with with Cold Gems doing the monkeys, I think there are so many side stories to these things that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there because uh, I'm yeah. sure the public isn't interested in uh, in all of that background. It would go forever. But there was a lot of politics involved where they didn't want me because of. The success I'd had with the the monkeys, and yet they hired Shorty Rogers to write and to do the music for the the proposed pilot of the Partridge Family, and Shorty called me because we'd done a lot of jazz concerts together and stuff. And Shorty mm-hmm. called me and said, "Ron, could you do? Uh, uh, could you get a group for putting this thing together?" And I had Sally and I had Stan. I had about about six of us that I brought in. And my idea was, hopefully, I would have one of the members of the group, at least one of the members of the group, writing material that we would be doing. I would also have one of the members of the group doing the arranging for the voices and another one doing whatever, you know, and then... I would handle all the vocal production and we would do that. So we went Mm -hmm. in and we did like three songs right away. And it turned out that Shorty called me later and said, Ron, I got good news and bad news. I said, what's the good news? He said, the pilot sold, got the highest rating outside of Mission Impossible ever as a pilot. And he said, so the show's a go. And I said, well, what's the bad news? He says, they want to replace him with somebody else 
uh, that's closer to the street, closer to the market. And I said, well, that's, I'm really sorry to hear about that. Then it turned out that whoever they got, they decided then let's keep John Baylor and Tom Baylor that were part of my group and Jackie Ward and me, that was the four of us. And they right. said, let's, let's get rid of Ron. And because of my history with the other stuff, you know, because you cut the head off and then you can tell everybody what the heck you wanted to do, you know? <laughs> so uh, yeah. what happened is the other singers said, no, we're not going to go along with that. So I was there and I was part of the group, <laughs> except they wow. kind of, they kind of, taken a spirit out of me and I went through that for we did five straight gold albums the show was a huge success I guess five straight gold albums with just the four of us and David singing it wasn't till the third show that we we even knew that David could sing because Shirley wasn't singing with us it was just and then when we found out that David could he was just ideal for the part because not only was he this teen throb, uh, heartthrob, but he right. and looked like it, but he was perfect for the lead vocalist. So he did that, yeah. and the four of us right. did all the backgrounds, and that was the story of that for five years, sir, or five wow. old albums. So that's incredible. And one of your vocalists was actually who sang Shirley's parts, wasn't that Jackie? Yeah, Jackie. It was just us. Yeah, it was just the four of us. Tom and I actually even dubbed in David's voice on the the low part of uh, of the first hit that we had because it was too low mm. for David. But David, yeah. we actually sped his voice up uh, like a, a quarter turn on the capstan just to just to youthify it slightly. And uh, but you know, there's all kinds of stories within there, technical things that that we did. But it was just. We were recording as fast as we could record and move on to the next thing. And that's kind of, uh, John ended up doing the arranging for the voices. I just kind of came, recorded the stuff, went on to my next job. And and that was kind of the way it was for, for all that time. When we were done, uh, once again, the, I guess, we realized that they paid us for the records, but they never paid us for doing the television show. And all of our recordings were the television show. So absolutely, I had to f- file some kind of a situation through Screen Actors Guild, just like as I had to do with the, the monkeys to try, try to get paid for what I'd done. I ended up collecting a, like a $120,000 to uh, divide up between the four of us for television stuff that we had done. And rightly so. Good for you. One of the things I was reading about is some of your early recordings were with the Letterman. And, you know, they, of course, really paved the way for the Beach Boys and so many others. What did you do with the Letterman? You know, I'm looking at stuff right on uh, When I Fall in Love. Uh, Perry Bodkin called me and said, you know, the Letterman were out there do, doing their recordings. And Perry called me and said, would you uh, come down here? I want you to record with the Letterman. So I came in and I said, what do you want me to do with this? And so there's the three of them. And he said, I want you to sing an octave above the melody. 
I want you to sing the melody oh, an octave higher. So when I fall in love, so if you're hearing that octave above the melody, that's me singing yeah. the melody all the way through. And that was the number one record. Oh, that it is an iconic song. I, it's truly one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. There was just a, a lot of things like that where I was brought in by myself. Other situations where I was bringing in that kicked off whole crazes. For instance, I mentioned Jerry Fuller, who wrote uh, Traveling Man, also mm -hmm. became a top producer for Columbia. And he produced uh, Andy Williams and he produced Johnny Mathis. He was a great writer. He'd been sitting on Dock of the Bay and all that stuff. Otis Redding? Yes, Otis Redding, right. And I did re backgrounds from all, all that stuff. So it was every every kind of bag that we were recording in. Al Capps ended up doing the arranging for the orchestra. And Al was the bass in my quartet. And he ended up primarily working as an arranger most of the time. Anyway, Jerry discovered a group and started, which was Gary Puckett, The Union Gap. And the first record oh. we did, Woman, Woman. I had Sally on that with me and, and stuff like this. Uh, that went to number one. Then we did Young Girl, Get Out of My Life. Then we did Over You. The interesting thing is Jerry wrote all that stuff. You know, it created a whole thing where we did about 10, I did about 10 straight things uh, there. So some of the other things, you know, where I had 18 singers. Just like the wind. There I had 18 singers, so I would be working with Neil Diamond. You know, you go through these and you realize every one of them were a number one record. What is that like, though, to have a voice that probably, you know, the vast majority of the Western world and much of the world has heard, but doesn't know who you are? What is that like for you? Is that is it kind of odd? Is it satisfying? Is it what is that like for you? It's probably the most ideal situation for somebody like me. If you if you view it from the standpoint that people want celebrity or people want to be in front of the crowd and they want to be in, out there entertaining, I would suggest that that's where most people's mind is. My God, if you see somebody that's if the television camera is scanned by and they're on camera, they're waving and they're so excited they're, they're on camera. And I was exactly the opposite. Although I was the lead singer in my quartet with Capitol, I found that I didn't want to consider myself an entertainer. 
I didn't want to stand there and try to make jokes. I didn't want to stand there and do the same song over and over and over. The fact that I would go through a whole day, maybe three to five sessions in a day, and and do maybe eight sides with uh, Dean Martin, run to do something else with you know Sammy or anybody else, and get through the day and realize that you walked with kings, you enjoyed the music, we laughed, we recorded, we were proud of the work we did, and there was nothing. You were standing there with Levi's and a T-shirt or, or shorts and a T-shirt recording all this stuff, and nobody in the public was buying you because they knew who you were. They were buying the music that you reached them with whether it was Michael Jackson or whether it was the Chipmunks or whether it was the Three Tenors or whatever I was working on, whether it was Sinatra or whether it was uh, Indian Reservation with Paul Revere and the Raiders, whatever I was doing, I was reaching a different demographic. And to sell that stuff, you have to hit them where they live. You don't suddenly say, this is good, this is bad, any sure. of that. No. Everybody has their own idea of what they like. And when you have success doing what they like, then you hit them right where they live. And they don't have to know who you are because they may be buying the image of whoever that lead singer was. The ideal part for me was I could do that and I could get paid by the hour or by the side, whichever I wanted, and move quickly through it and have nobody know who we were, go to the bank, right. make a good living doing it, and, and never go through the, this thing where people are into your private life and trying to find out this or that, the other thing, and say, no, believe me, I was perfectly cast for that because that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted to sing. I wanted to sing, and yeah. I wanted to sing all the time, and that's what I was doing. Yeah, and I know over the last several years, more and more people have gotten to know who the Wrecking Crew was. The documentary came out. And for those who don't know, they were a group of some of the best musicians in the world, studio musicians, session players, who played on thousands of songs, often uncredited, on some of the biggest songs on the planet. Oh, yeah. The 60s, 70s. And, you know, people thought it was the Beach Boys playing the instruments on their album. Of course, it was not. It was people from the wrecking crew in your group, Ron, you and your group were really tied in with them and really in so many ways are really part of the wrecking crew because all the vocal work that you did. Yeah. Uh, what, what is it like to look back on that period and hear some of those iconic songs and know that your voice is in there? Does that just bring a great deal of satisfaction to you? Yes. As a matter of fact, in, in, in simple terms, yes, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of our work. I have often said when they did the debut of the, the movie on, or the documentary on The Wrecking Crew, Denny Tedesco, who is Tommy's son, who did that, right. Denny asked me to come and be on stage. Although we weren't in the because it was only dealing with the musicians. He asked me to be there to address it because we were the vocal version of the Wrecking Crew. Everything that they were doing instrumentally, I was doing vocally. Right. The Wrecking Crew just dealt with the instrumental thing with Hal Blaine and, and Tedesco and all the others, even including Glenn uh, Campbell and 
a lot of wonderful people, but we were in the studios together. We just had a love affair with the, with each other. And the success of all of this, uh, Hal Blaine once came to me and he had a copy of the uh, a billboard. And out of the top 100, he had red stars next to 15 that he had done. And I had done the same thing. <laughs> it was a wonderful thing, but I didn't really appreciate it I appreciated the fact that I felt like if I don't continue to to do one hit after another, uh, I will be replaced by somebody either with more talent or a better attitude or that's hungrier or whatever it is. Because right. my first thought was I replaced the best talent I've ever heard in my life when I was starting because of my flexibility of my voice. And most of these people were having to get out of the business at 43 because they were being replaced by me, you know? And I thought, okay, when this happened, when my rocket took off, I thought, well, I better be in a position at age 43, not to say, hey, buddy, can you spare a dime? You know, I'm trying to start a new career or something. No. I made it a career that lasted uh, until I was 61 when my, I was number one all the way to there until my voice broke. Wow. And, and it was just an amazing career. But it was spurred by the fact that I thought everything I did had to be successful. And if it wasn't, I could expect them to have somebody else replace me. Going hand in hand with that is when Sinatra calls or Dean Martin calls or Sammy Davis calls and they say, can you do a a session at United on Tuesday at at 10 with Dean? Uh, The answer is yes, because if you say no, you don't expect them to change their date so they can get you and I'll make it work. I'll move everything around. I'll make these things work. And what happened is I ended up working around the clock all the time. I was just working around the clock. Now, there's so much recently with the coming out of the Elvis movie. There's a great deal of focus on Elvis Presley, Uh which is really, really exciting. Do I understand this correctly, that you were part of the the comeback special? Oh, yeah. That 68 special, when, when Elvis died, actually... That was kind of an underground thing that was pulled out because it was the last, you know, television thing that he had done. And they pulled it out and they sh- and they showed it and they paid us for, for again because it was all kind of an underground thing. We did the TV show, but in the interim, in a in the middle, Elvis got out on this little stage with everybody around him and stuff like this and did this thing, yeah. all dressed in black and, and all of that. I did three pictures with Elvis too, but the, oh, the yeah. times that we worked with, with Elvis, my whole attitude had uh, evolved regarding my appreciation of Elvis because originally... I wasn't that big a fan. And then when I, when I recorded with him, what he gave in the studio, I mean, he would be standing at a mic, like we stand at a mic and we're, we've got the music in front of us, we're sight reading or whatever it is, and we're recording. Uh, we're totally into the sound. 
Elvis would stand in front of a mic and be putting on a show while he was recording. He would actually hit his knees on the floor, just fall to the floor and, and stuff like this while he was recording. I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, <laughs> we're standing in front of a mic recording and nobody can see this. But he was so right. into his performance. It was way beyond. It was something that I, I learned to appreciate the fact that he was on to his performing. He was never off. Well, I've heard even Austin Butler, the, the actor who played Elvis in the movie, that he didn't want to just mimic the motions of Elvis, but learn to feel the music the way that Elvis did because his motions came out of what he felt internally as a response to the music. So I, I'm not surprised that even in the studio, he was feeling it and his body represented that yeah. in, in the motions that he did. So that was really, really interesting. No, no, I've never seen it before. I'd never seen it before. And I've worked with the greatest and, but they're just uh, recording. It wasn't like you're performing visually, you know, and, but he was. And then you got to work with Michael Jackson. And I actually just recorded a special with a, with a friend of mine, John Jackson on seventies, Elvis, That'll be coming out hopefully next week. Uh-huh. I'm kind of dispelling some of the myths and really celebrating the best parts of what Elvis was doing in the 70s. And, you know, we did talk about there's a there's a sad parallel there between Michael Jackson and Elvis Presley, you know, getting hooked on drugs and dying too young and being in that upper echelon where very, very few get. And you had an opportunity to sing with both of them. What was that like to work with Michael Jackson? Well, Michael was a, an, an interesting individual because his talent was very unique. I mean, I did Ben with him, which was a, a number one record. When I saw the the Jackson 5 special that was a, like a, a little mini series, and, and I remember one of the guys saying, he wasn't going to go to the session. And they said, you got to do it. And he says, well, they'll just replace our voices later with studio singers. And I, when I heard that, wow. watching the thing, I thought, oh, my God, cat's out of the bag. And yeah, I did some of that stuff. But I found out with Michael and, and John and Tom Baylor even worked closer with Michael because they, when I introduced, uh, I think, Tom to, uh, to Quincy, I was doing stuff with Quincy for... Uh, You're talking about Quincy Jones, yeah, correct? for Ray Charles, you know, where Ray would say, doing America and say, sing it, children, or whatever it was, you know. Sing, sing, you know, I wish I had somebody to help me sing this. America. 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 I love you, America. It was us, and so... And I did a whole album that I don't never even know what happened with it, uh, where Michael had written all this strange language that he wanted in the thing, and he wanted to uh, feature a sound like I had done in Hunt for Red October with Basil Polidorus, and I think he got Basil. I don't know what it was, and I had a number of voices uh, in that thing. But anyway, there were times when... Uh, Michael would be doing something for like a public service announcement. And Michael would just not want to uh, 
commit himself from the from the booth, they would call me and say, can you send somebody over to do uh, like a Michael Jackson sound alike so Michael can uh, get into this thing? So they'd go in the studio and uh, I'd send over Kip Lennon or something and Kip would go out on mic in front of Michael. And he says how intimidating it was to go out and sing Michael's part. Oh, I can't imagine. While Michael's (laughs) in the booth judging, you know, whatever it was. Right. Or learning what he wants to do. So Kip went out and sang it and then came in and Michael said, okay, that's it. That's fine. Just use that. That's incredible. I cannot imagine. (laughs) And and Kip came back to me and he says, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. He just said, yeah, that's fine. Let's just use that one. Let's just use that. As I said, Michael was different. He really was different. We have more success working in the studios than we did primarily as our own group because we were going to tell everybody what was good. (laughs) <laughs> right now i know in speaking of your group i know you obviously had our mutual friend sally stevens but from time to time it would include thorough ravenscroft who really yeah. was an icon who would go on to sing you know you're the mean one mr grinch and was the voice of tony the tiger and yes you know his voice is featured on so many attractions in the in the disney park right haunted mansion Park of the caribbean what what was he like Thurl was just a wonderful man, a unique talent. When I first heard him, it was in it, it was in the Music Man, and uh, I, when I heard these voices, I thought, "Oh my God!" I uh, this old house. I can remember all kinds of recordings where I heard that voice, and I never so knew, never knew who it was, but I I recognized these voices. And Thurl was a sweetheart of a guy. He. He was the kind of guy that like a, a father that would, or a grandfather that would put his arm around you and recognize that you were uh, a unique talent that was up and coming, not mm-hmm. just hoping that you'd go away. So in my career, as I started replacing all those people, I kept including the great talents that went before me uh, on anything that I could because that is beautiful. In fact, Thurl, at one point, I was doing all this uh, for Dr. Seuss, all of those things, the Cat the Hat, the Lorax, the, all these uh, television specials. Oh, really? And I was doing all the voices. And I remember Thurl at one point told me, he says, Ron, I'm retiring. <laughs> but Thurl always, uh, he says, I'm only coming out to do some of this stuff for you. But uh, Thurl actually uh, re- respected me so much that I had a business manager uh, so I could invest in different properties and do all kinds of stuff. You know, pe- people like Gene Roddenberry and all, and uh, Sebastian Cabot and uh, all these people that were uh, in that era were with the same business manager and we were investing in things together and Thurl got my business management person to ha- handle his stuff. So he invested his stuff because he saw how well I was doing. And that's the kind of respect Thurl had for me. So I really enjoyed the relationship. Do I understand correctly that you, you mentioned Gene Roddenberry Is it one of your vocalists that do that high soprano on the original Star Trek theme? Do I remember that correctly? No, I don't think so. Uh, I did not. I did some of the Star Trek stuff, but that theme song I did not do. 
Well, really, in so many of the shows that I grew up with, you know, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Flipper, you know, Love American Style, which I mentioned I, I couldn't watch when I was a kid. My parent, it was I was too young, but so many of those great, great themes. And then you've done also hundreds of incredible film scores and soundtracks. I I was reading that you you're on Grease and Butch Cassidy and Butch Cassidy. Bert called me and said, Beckerack uh, called me and said, I want you to come up to my place. And he had this movieola and he said, I want you to help me write on this thing because I'm trying to do something with the Swingle Singers. And it was for Butch Cassidy. And, and so I went up to his place and he was still married to Angie at that time. And I went up there, went in there and I felt kind of strange where it's sitting down and he's showing me this, this thing. Uh, where they're robbing all the the banks in in Bolivia or whatever it is, and he says, yeah. "I, I want to do this uh, this jazz thing in there uh, with swing singers." And I said, "Well, why are you getting the swing singers?" And <laughs> and I said, "Because I can put together a better group than that." And so he said, "Okay, you're on. Let's do it." So wow. uh, we we talked a little bit about it. Then I hired. I had Sally on top, and and uh, Sue Allen and Jackie Ward, and I had Thurl on the bottom, and and uh, Gene Morford and myself and John Baylor. The Academy Award was one for music in that picture. Butch Cassidy. Out of that came. Uh, uh, raindrops are falling on my head. You know. So, so there there was some. But for five minutes, we were singing just us while they were robbing banks in Bolivia. And uh, that whole concept, it was really an interesting thing. I would run from one of those to the, to the Dirty Harry movies, you know, all of those with all, right. all of um, James Horner's stuff, you know. Yeah, James Horner is one of my musical heroes, and I, I still am when I think about his passing and I think of some of the movies that have come out that I'm like, Oh, this, this probably would have been a Horner score. And oh, I uh, you, you also got to work with John Barry. He's one of my favorites too. And <laughs> yeah. not long ago I had uh, a composer on Trevor Kowalski, a really young composer, just brilliant. Absolutely love his work. He was on my podcast and we were talking about John Barry, you know, of course he did all the James Bond films, but we specifically focused in on the score for Dances with Wolves. And that's one of the ones that you worked with him on. What Tell us about that project, what you remember about John, um, and maybe what can you share about that? Okay. John, <laughs> I loved working with John. I did Out of Africa with John, and, mm -hmm. and I had a number of singers. And I remember when I had the large group, not only am I singing, but I'm standing kind of in front with them singing on mic, but I'm also trying to relay direction. I'm trying to direct at the same time okay. physically. John, he, he had the, the damnedest physical way of finding a downbeat. His arms were so fluid that you couldn't see any sharp beats to anything you know it was just fluidly uh, directing in front and i would look out and i'm trying to make sure that i'm i'm reading where 
where the downbeat is in his uh, in his physical stuff. So anyway, we we do the uh, out of Africa, and I look up on the screen when I see it, and I see all these herds of animals down there that they're changing direction and and all stampeding together, you know, and it's just a unique thing and and the voices that we're doing now fast forward uh where i'm doing dances with wolves and i've got 16 singers we're doing this thing and i I am directing these people and i'm looking at john and i'm seeing this same fluid motion and looking (laughs) for the downbeat and 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 he's the sweetest guy too and i'm looking at all of this and i'm trying to keep my eye on him and also the sing and be part of the group and direct and pass on his direction. And as I'm doing this, I'm looking on the screen and on the screen, we've got Buffalo stampeding in every which direction. And, (laughs) and I finally, when we finished, when we finished, I walked up to John and I said, I got to tell you one thing, John, you do the greatest stampede music I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> because both of these movies were, were singing to a stampede that's going on the screen. <laughs> but John was wonderful just a, a, and a very sweet man, too. I love that. Do you miss being in the mix, being in the studio, rubbing elbows? Do you miss it since you've been retired? I had this unique, and and when I say unique, I mean one-of-a-kind experience. And it was much longer than most people get a chance to do that. When I finished, I realized that I wasn't ready. I was ready at age 43 because I programmed myself to say, okay, I've replaced the best that had to leave the business by age 43. When I got there, I almost had a mid-age crisis because I was still going. And I wasn't about to quit at number one. I did start a couple of companies at that point and build five studios. But I kept going and I kept being involved. And all I could think of is this career had gone beyond the norm. When my voice left at 61, medically, they said, you're going to have to take a couple weeks off. Well, I've never done that. Yeah. And then, and then I, I had bookings and I had to call and say, I'm sorry, I can't make that. I, I, I really, I didn't realize at the time, this is it. Wow. Within a couple weeks, every time I go to move my voice, just to hit like a Beach Boy thing that I'd been doing forever. Everybody thought I sounded exactly like Brian Wilson anyway. If I went to do all that stuff, I'd start to cough. And I'd say, my God, it's over. It's really over. There's nothing I can do about this. I suddenly said, well, God, thank you very much for a wonderful, wonderful career. I loved it. I loved every second of it. I loved the people I worked with. They were my family. And then all I could think of is I can now move on to the rest of my life. I have the wherewithal to do it. The most shocking thing was I missed the people. I missed the, the, the 
people that you brought in as talent into the business with you, the people you listened to and you said, there's a great talent there and I'm going to make sure they're working and whatever it is. Uh, It's all this legacy of the people that came behind you that you started their careers for them. It's all of the businesses that had started. It's all the success that we did. And it was the fact that as shy as I was and didn't want to be on stage, in the arena of the studio, I was a special talent. And and I missed being there. I missed being there and I missed the people I was there with. But I realized it was, uh, that's the way it was. And I'm just moving on to the next stage of my life. Well, when it comes down to it, it really is all about the relationships we make, the, the love that we sow and have sown in us. And that's, I really can appreciate what you shared. How would you want people to remember Ron Hicklin? I think quite honestly, I would want them to appreciate how much I cared, Mm -hmm. how much I cared about what we left on tape, how much I cared about the individuals I was working with, how much I cared about the individuals I was working for. I used to think, I don't want to be out there. I don't want to be like the story of Chorus Line or something. I don't want to be somebody that's elevated to a point that when it crashes, it crashes and you can't get back doing what you want to do and what you want to do is sing. I did. I had that wonderful career where even if I was in charge of, of most of the vocal sessions I did, I was singing and I was making sure that there, I was working with the best talent I could. And I was making sure that the product we left was something I was proud of. Even if I never heard it again for 40 years, I was proud of of what we left on tape. And it wasn't till I retired that I didn't know what to do with my time. And I sat there Mm -hmm. and I thought I had a lot of tapes and stuff. And I thought from my commercials and all of that stuff, because we haven't even touched on that, but that was huge. I mean, we did everything, every product in America uh, and <laughs> and all around the world. I was doing station breaks for Germany, for, for Moscow, to uh, Osaka, to Buenos Aires, to France, to, you know, all around the world. I was doing vocals for stuff. I sat down with a lot of these tapes and I thought, They're going to disintegrate if I don't transfer them somehow. So I transferred them to digital and put them in my computer. And as I was going through, it's the first time I'd had time in 40 years to even listen to what I'd done. There were so many movies, so many things that I had done that I'd never had copies of. And I never sat and listened to it because I didn't have time. Wow, Ron, that's a very, very thoughtful answer. And you have so much to look back on and to be able to smile at. And uh, you've left an enormous body of work. And if you think about the people who, like me, who grew up hearing you singing popular songs on the radio, the commercials, the radio breaks, and theme songs for television that were really a staple of my childhood. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution to Americana and to the American landscape and culture. 
you've played a large part in that. And you probably don't get maybe a lot of thank yous from people who were the recipients of all the great work you did. So, so thank you. Well, I thank you for the words that you've just used because it really is an emotional thing for me. I, I, I can't tell you how I would do things and later when I would hear them, I've told this story before, but uh, because we talked a little bit about James Horner, I loved all the stuff I did with James. And James and I had a special understanding because he was a perfectionist and so was I. When we did Glory, for instance, yes, where, where everybody is getting killed and carrying the flag, what I did is I had 50 singers, so everybody's going to have to sight-read something. And James stood up in front, and he says, you know, I'm this is going to be written in three different languages because I don't want people to, to latch on to any particular language here. So he oh. says, I want this to be a timeless thing. So we're sight-reading a language that doesn't really exist. We're sight-reading right. our notes. We're sight-reading the rhythms. We're sight-reading our parts, whatever it is. He said, okay. And James, being a perfectionist, it would be like if in bar 194, a flugelhorn f squeaked or something, he would say, back to the top. That was James. That's what wow. some of the musicians didn't like. But I appreciated it because it was a performance. We wanted to perform. We got all musicians on the soundstage and we've got the group together. And behind us, you would see the stripes coming across the screens where James could look and, and hit certain beats and stuff like this. And he said, okay, let's put one on tape and see what we have. And so we put one on tape. And he said, everybody take a break. And he went in the studio. He was in there for a while. And he came out and he said... Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> I just, I, I actually, <laughs> at this point, I'm thinking, you do one of the great pieces of music in history. You do it the first time it's ever been done. You're doing it. Mm -hmm. One take with 50 people and all that stuff. And I said, okay, everybody, give me your I-9s. Make sure your contracts are signed. Give me your W-4s, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. And I'll check it all. Yeah. And I'm in the studio for two hours after everybody leaves by myself and James in the booth. And I'm sitting there looking to make sure everybody signs stuff. And then I realized what you've just done, I don't think anybody on earth could have done. Nobody. Wow. And... And suddenly the loneliness of sitting there realizing what you've done and what you continually do, but everybody's expecting it out of you. Just period. Right. You are an island. You are a rock. And you don't have the same emotions that other people have. You don't, you're not allowed to. You're not thought of in those terms. You're thought of as, right. as somebody that just kicks out one hit after another, and that's it. And you haven't got time right. to call home. And yet you sit there. And when I saw that picture, and I heard what was happening, and I, and I felt it was the first time I'd, I'd ever seen uh, Denzel in a picture and stuff. And I'm sitting there watching it. And I walked out of that studio, and I couldn't talk. I was... I couldn't say anything because I'd break down and cry at that moment. 
God, you know, and that's the way I felt about James's music. When we did Apollo 13, it was the same thing. James said before we did it, he said, Ron, I want you to get 18 kids that all can sight read, that have perfect pitch. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a tall order. Oh, that, do- that doesn't exist. <laughs> he, he thought it might. And and what I I would go in there while he was rehearsing a fourteen minute cue with the orchestra, I would have the kids never having ever rehearsed because Screen Actors Guild would require them to be paid if they did. They'd never sung before, but I played everybody's part. I auditioned kids. I played everybody's part on a synthesizer and told them to memorize it. And when I gave them a downbeat and I gave them a cutoff, that was it. And so we walk in, they never sung together. And we walk in and we do this 14 minute cue of the Apollo 13 taking off and it goes through all this orchestration and sound design and, and things crashing and all that stuff. And the moment they hit space, wham, we come in and it's just pure. It's absolutely pure in, in the, just these kids' voices. And as, if, as we're going through this, now this is a long cue. And when, yeah. when we're finished, uh, Sandy DeCrescent, who is a musician's contractor, and Ron Howard, Ron comes up and he says, this is, the, of all my years in show business, this is the highlight. This is it. And he walked into the booth. He comes out. And Sandy DeCrescent, they listen for a playback. And Sandy has all the mascara running down her face. listening to playback and I'm sitting there thinking and when we did this for three days in a row on that picture and then James when it was done they were filming us in in there to to do some kind of tribute for James and James came up to me and he says Ron I thought you said this was going to be hard (laughs) (laughs) little did he know nobody nobody would know nobody would know they sure. what you try to do to make something special or what you try to do to be one of a kind and and all i can do is is i miss him dearly but i all i can do is say those connections and like i told lala once lala said ron why don't you work half as much as you do and charge three times what you do and i said because lalo i walk with kings and you're one of them so I said I wouldn't trade that for anything. Just as we wrap up here, I would love to do a special on James Horner and have you and Sally and maybe find some others that have worked with him and just spend some time hearing these stories that really the public is not privy to. And I would love to get that with you. Ron, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time, these wonderful stories. Thank you for your contribution to so much of the soundtrack of huge population our lives and uh, just very grateful for you i'm very thankful that you've given me your time today you're quite welcome thank you very much and thank you everybody for listening this is a very special episode if you've enjoyed it like i've had share it with your friends so they can hear some more of these wonderful stories that we have heard today from from ron hicklin please keep your bags packed and join us on our next journey to the stage that's a wrap. Okay, thank you, Brian. Bye-bye.